and it's a warm welcome to the latest Leaders Performance Podcast. My name is David Cushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. Across the table from me in our high-tech recording studio here at Leaders HQ is John Porch, Lead Writer at the Leaders Performance Institute. John, hello. Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm very well, and I'm very excited to be travelling back with you in audio form to London 2015. That's right. Second day, in fact. Um... We're looking at an archive session today called Decision Making Under Pressure. Um, the speakers that day were Saracen Splyhalf Alex Good, professional rugby player, of course, Wing Commander Martin Higgins, head of the Royal Air Force's Red Arrows, and Greg Davis, who at the time was head of behavioural finance at Barclays Bank. It's a great lineup. No pressure on you, John, but what were they talking about? <laughs> well, David, they spoke about how pressure can impact upon your decision making and the idea that stress can shorten time and emotional horizons. Quite an interesting topic. They also talked about accepting mistakes in training as a base for continuous improvement. What a tricky one when you think of the Red Arrows and the RAF. But uh, there was also a little bit of talk about the role of self-criticism as well, and that goes for coaches and players. Decision-making under pressure archive session from the uh, Leaders Sport Performance Summit in London 2015 coming up shortly. Let me tell you about the next Leaders Performance Summit, though. It's taking place on the 10th and 11th of July. Soldier Field, Chicago, our big return to the Windy City. Uh, you, us, 300 other people, and we've got a terrific uh, speaker lineup coming together. The president of the San Francisco 49ers Enterprises and executive vice president of football operations, the founder of Rethink Group, a couple of uh, authors. Ryan Holiday, the author of The Ego is the Enemy. I know you've read that one, John. Uh, and Owen Slot, the uh, author of The Talent Lab, will be joining us. We've also got the Managing Director of IDEO and the High Performance Director for the US Ski and Snowboard Association. It is coming together rather well indeed, and we do hope you will be able to join us. If you would like to, uh, or if you would like to become a member of the Leaders Performance Institute, visit the Leaders website, leadersinsport.com slash performance, and all the details are there. Right, John, are we ready? Let's press play. Thanks very much for coming. Um, thanks, guys. I think when I, whenever I work with groups on, on decision-making and decision-making under pressure, there are two things which I, I usually begin by finding. One is that many people in the conversation mean something different by decision-making, and the second is that many people in the conversation mean something different by under pressure, because decisions are not a unitary thing, pressures are not a unitary thing. So maybe we should get our misunderstandings out in open, uh, and if each of you can just give us two minutes on, uh, on decision-making under pressure that you're working in now in, in your environment, what it means to you in your environment. Greg. Yes, so um, for me, there are two broad groups of people. There are professional investors who, in a sense, are always under, under pressure, but that's, that's what they're paid to do. That's their job. And then there's the rest of us, investors who, um, if all of us need to choose what to do with our finances, and most people find that incredibly stressful most of the time. And most people avoid that pressure by doing nothing, by postponing decisions, by leaving them for years. But that particular group, when we come to things like the financial crisis, Lehman's collapsing in 2008, the levels of pressure and stress then in people figuring out what on earth do I do, how do I respond 
to my world changing um, can be immensely, immensely pressured. And, and how consequential it, uh, is that for you versus how consequential it is for your, for your client? Well, for me, my, my role is largely to help people to make better decisions. So I'm there in an advisory context trying to help people understand who they are and how they should respond to these pressured environments. Um, so the, the actual consequences are much more on the clients and, and the decision makers themselves. I'm sort of sitting there in an observing and helping role. Observing and helping with the red arrows. How does it work out for you? Um, decision making falls into two components really. The really short term uh, decision making. So whether you're inside an airplane or uh, an engineer who has to get an airplane ready for the sortie. Um, it, time is, is our biggest enemy, so we have to deliver world-class aerobatic displays at the right time, at the right place, so things like the Queen's birthday fly-past has to be on time. So um, it's understanding you always have to make a safe decision, um, but also the, uh, to avoiding any reputational risk because we don't want to destroy the brand. And then longer term, it's... Uh, are all the plans and risk assessments, etc., that you have in place, uh, are those are the decisions underpinning those correct? And um, we'll come back to some of the uh, the consequentiality of it uh, later. I've never met anybody before who said sorting in context. I, I, I like <laughs> it. Um, Alex, decision making in your context. I think um, I break decision making down into to two sides really, in terms of you've got the individual decision making. So. It could be in sports terms or rugby terms, uh, a goal kick, and you have to have unbelievable preparation um, and routine you go through. So it could be your breathing. It might be you know, how many steps you take, you know, the cues you have in your own mind to that. And I think the more you repeat them and have them in the bank, the easier it becomes because you can then take out all the external factors and pressures that you have. Um, and then the, in terms of the team decision-making, I think it's about relationships to a certain extent, really, for me, in that you know, if you have trust for the person on your right and your left and you know they're going to deliver and do exactly what they said they're going to do and what you've planned before, planned, then 100% you can go into the game and then commit fully to what you need to do and focus on your own role. And you don't have to worry about other things or pulling rabbits out of a hat. You can just focus on your own role. So for me, it's about that relationship in terms of the team. Let's take two of those things separately. Uh, one of them you mentioned practice, and the other one you mentioned difference between individuals and team. Let's come back to the individuals and teams later. But uh, it, in terms of practice, what you, what you described there was not really different from any other form of practice. So how do we, how do we get the pressure element into that, that decision-making practice? So being good at it is, 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 is one thing on the practice field, but how do we bring pressure into the practice situation? Well, there's many ways you can add pressure to uh, a practice, but I think if you, if you break down the core skill first and foremost, then everything else follows from that. So, as I said before, if you have 100% you know, faith in you've kicked 1,000 balls from this position over the post before and you know your technique's solid, when all that pressure comes onto you, and it, you know, it might be the noise of the crowd, it could be the TV screens, the expectation, whatever it is, you can focus on what you're doing and your own skill and that make it a unique skill to you. So, you know, you know you've got to, you know, have your head down, you've got to do your three steps, you've got to breathe correctly um, and you've got to follow through the ball. And you'll concentrate on that unique skill and nothing else. And I think the more you can focus on one thing in that sense, then everything else just sort of goes away in the periphery and 
um, having that skill down to you know, the minute detail can help massively. And that works most of the time, and we'll come back to, to when it doesn't work. <laughs> um, are, are you allowed to make mistakes? Uh, um, we, won't, we won't see them or appreciate them, will we? But uh, in training, how, how, uh, how do you get that pressure element in? And B, how, what's the margin for error? Well, the mistakes are all part of the training. So what we're looking for is a continuous improvement. So from day one, uh, the, 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 uh, the boys will uh, be making mistakes, but there's suitable amount of space between aeroplanes that that won't be an issue. Then as they improve, um, th th those margins will be decreased. But the, the really important... To, to what? What kinds of margins are we talking about between wingtips? Six feet. Six feet between so wingtips. That's, that's for in the summertime. In the wintertime, it's, it's, it's a bit bigger than that. So Naturally. Yeah. yeah. So, but it, it's comfortable. But the, picking up on what the Alex said, it's, it's building, uh, using the debrief or the after-action review as our... Th that, that makes the team. It's understanding where you went wrong, mistakes, and then put measures... Or, put things in place so you don't make that yeah. mistake again. That's the pressure to individual and team improvement throughout the year. And so these two guys can practice, but you're in the position, I'm always impressed by, uh, of all people, I'm, I'm impressed by in sport in particular, it's, it's actually the footballers who have to perform at, um, 40 or more times a year. There's, there's very little time window, you know, you haven't got mm. a four-year cycle to get things right. You're pretty much in the same position as, as that. You, you, you don't just trade on the Queen's birthday, do you? Yeah. Um, so you can't practice. So what mechanisms do you have to, for, for you dealing with pressure and for your clients and others you work with dealing with pressure? Yeah, I mean, in investment decision-making, it, it is almost impossible to practice, particularly for those stressed environments, because they only arrive you know, once every 10 years or so. We get the real calamity. And typically, people who are making decisions under those pressured environments have not been in it before. They've started work subsequent to the last one. So you can't build up an innate response of that happens and I just know what to do because I've done it several thousand times before. What you can do, however, is you can thoughtfully construct for yourself a set of principles and rules that you use to guide behavior in the time. It's a bit like, um, you know, here's one we made earlier. For many investors, actually, you shouldn't have to make decisions under times of stress because you have, you have constructed a set of rules that says, here is how I decide. If this happens, then I will do that. And you can almost start to automate these things. Now, in a professional context, that's less easy to do because you have to take advantage of the dip, or advantage of the chaos. But for most individual investors, the best thing you can do in times of stress is actually not make a decision. You know, don't just do something, stand there. Because it's, it's those times when you, we are faced with a calamitous situation, you're incredibly prone to making decisions, um, and often the best thing to do is just to do nothing and wait for markets to recover again. Right, which isn't an option you two guys have got. Um, you've got <laughs> to have these people. So on the one hand, the stuff here we can, we can take from sport, which is that because one of the frustrations is, is that we can't train for every, every stressful, every pressure eventuality. Um, um, so we would like to have some kinds of rules of thumb that we can take out. Um, but we have to, we have to operate um, um, in, in the moment. There's no, there's no stepping back. Um, but what, what do you think happens? Uh, uh, Martin, I'll, I'll come to you for this. What do you think happens to people's decision-making under pressure? So um, 
do, do, is there any window for your pilots to become more risky or to hesitate? What kinds of errors do they, do they make? Um, it goes back to uh, Greg's point where actually the, the each and every pilot and engineer has uh, a set of principles which um, they adhere to even if uh, for use in emergency uh, scenarios. That's what, why we train them to do that. So for a pilot, it will be um, if something goes wrong with his aeroplane, it's get away from the, the other aeroplanes, get away from the ground, get away from the crowd it, in that yeah. order, and it will be automatic, and we yeah. train them to do that. Um, once you've done all those three things, you can then deal yeah. with the, the calamity if it is. I guess the difference, before I give the audience a chance to, to, to ask if we've got any questions at this stage, I, I guess the difference is, is your guys always know what the end goal is, and there's no one trying to screw it up for them. Uh, whereas there's always someone trying to, to make you change your, your, your plan and, and actually the markets are, are kind of encouraging you to think twice about what you've done as, uh, you've done as well. They are. I mean, a moment of stress, one big thing it does is, is it shortens your, your time horizons, it shortens your emotional horizon, and all of us feel uncomfortable under stress, and what do we do when we feel uncomfortable? We reach for, we reach for comfort, we reach for things that feel good, that feel feel safe. Um, and when it comes to investing, it's, it's a, a version of fight or flight. People have a tendency either to freeze and do nothing and stare rabbits in the headlight, or they do too much. And the question is, how do you build for yourself a set of rules that, you, you, what was it, um, get away from the planes, get away from the ground, get away from the crowd. Um, I think in every decision context, we can think, what are the set of rules that I can reach for to make sure that my gut feel, my need for comfort, doesn't cause me to do, to do too much, to run around like a headless chicken. Yeah. Um, just this part of the discussion before we move on to anything else. Anybody got any, any questions or comments they'd like to, they'd like to put in at, at, at this stage? Okay, cool. There will be other, um, will be other opportunities. I, I'd like now to turn to what happens when we have um, um, uh, made mistakes under, under pressure and decision making hasn't, uh, hasn't worked out. So Martin, I, I can come to you first uh, because it's the most consequential. 2011, could you just spend a couple of minutes walking people through the events of, of 2011? Um, it, probably most people saw it in, in, the, in the press. In August uh, 11, uh, John Egging at Bournemouth Airshow uh, was involved in a, in a crash. Uh, due to a, he lost consciousness whilst he was in the aeroplane due to G. And then three months later, we lost uh, Sean Cunningham uh, when his ejection seat fired, and unfortunately, he didn't recover from uh, the fall. Um, uh, immediate consequences that the team took a pause in flying uh, for a couple of months just to assess exactly what needed to be done to get us back on track. And obviously, there was a reflection personal reflection stage um, there as well. Um, the important thing, that the service does this, whether you're Army, uh, Navy, or is first things first, uh, what went wrong and what can we do to, to make it, make, you know, ensure it never happens again. Um, and actually, to do that, you need to act as a team. Um, it's very easy, I suppose, to go off as individuals and um, uh, sort of reflect by yourself, but actually that's that brought us closer together um, in, in, that, in that time. And touch wood, we're in a much better yeah. place now. Which is a, 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 a super interesting response to, 
take a pause for two months because my guess is that most people here will be thinking get back on the bike mm. uh, when there's been something like that. So what was the what happened in that two months? What was the process that, that people were taken through? It was, it was actually about six weeks, but the it, that was all about uh, find out the initial causes of the of the incident because um, obviously at the time we didn't have any assurance from day two after the event whether the ejection seat was safe uh, but then a lot went on behind the scenes to understand what what happened so um, it, it was the right thing to do uh, and actually we felt stronger for it having had that pause yeah. to then move on yeah. and um, and how long before you think the team was back up to its normal uh, its normal functioning level right back when they went into flight Truthfully, I think two years after it. Really? Yeah. Two years. That two, at least, because uh, there was folk. I mean, I'm talking about the uh, the engineers who watched it. Yeah. Um, there were, we had um, 50 people visiting us that day. So kids, parents with yeah. mobile phones, and yeah. they watched watched it happen. So in terms of that dynamic, there was that took ages to. So your pilots and your ground team were not back to normal for two years. Mm. That. I'm not talking that everyone was uh, no, nothing unsafe, yeah. but actually, uh, in the background, it was it was there, yeah. uh, and actually, to to feel like you've moved on as a team, it took a good two years, I'd say. Right. Mm. So that kind of puts your consequences into perspective, um, uh, but it, it also raises the issue of, of longer-term stress. Mm. So whenever we're thinking of decision-making <coughs> under pressure. And in the in the Rugby World Cup, that every every pundit and his dog was saying um, that was a bad decision under pressure. Um, but every time, I think the meaning was short-term pressure. That's something that you know. And, and as as you say, the, the pressures are not always short-term. They can be lingering on and on and on. One thing I think that we're particularly bad at, at, at addressing, particularly bad at having a language for, particularly bad at thinking about, is is how to deal with longer-term pressures. But you've got them. In, in the trading world, so how, how how do you deal with them with your clients? Absolutely, I mean it's it's interesting that when people invest and the investment starts going down and you're losing money, people's first inclination is to hold on to it because we hate selling at a loss. We hate turning a paper loss into a real loss. It's painful to us, so we hold on. But if markets are going down and you're holding on and holding on and there's hope it's going up and it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's that long-term consequence, the, the sequential build-up of stress that then creates the, the, the fact that as it gets worse and worse, I, selling is more and more painful, but I get more and more stressed about my future. And so in the end, it, you snap. You sell at the bottom. Now, a classical finance professor would say, well, don't sell at the bottom. It's stupid. It's irrational. Actually, there's nothing irrational about selling at the bottom. If you've lost... If you've invested and you've lost 25% you've lost of your wealth disappear in the markets, and you think, if this gets any worse, I'm going to have to sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids, whatever it may be, um, there's nothing irrational about selling at the bottom because you get something real in return. You get to draw a line under it and you get to move on. It's just phenomenally expensive because you, you lose money on the way down, you sell at the bottom, and then to your point, you cannot go from that situation of despondency and depression back to optimism. And we've seen this post-financial crisis that for the last six years, people have been sitting, people who have money to invest have been sitting 
waiting for this magical moment to invest and have been unable to pull the trigger because they're psychologically burnt by that buildup of stress at the time. I think it's really worth remembering, you heard it here, long-term stress, just sell the kids. Barclays will, <laughs> Barclays will broker it for you. It sounds like, I, I, I'm sure there are loads of takers. Um, <laughs> um, when we think of decision, we're already doing it. We're still talking about decision making being a, a, a thing and we're still talking about pressure even though we've divided it up into long term and, uh, and short term as, as, as being a thing. But if, if I can try and put it in a, a sporting context with um, one, of the, uh, one of the projects within the EIS which <coughs> I, I think has been uh, yielded some fruit here is to try and break people up into different kinds of decision makers. So there are people who are naturally your poker players, there are people who are naturally your, your gunslingers. And, and what's interesting is that we can't predict from how people might be under a non-stressful situation to how they would be under a stressful situation. Um, so, so your poker player might become a bit more risky, your gunslinger might become a bit more, bit more conservative. Um, so I'd be interested if in the Red Arrows you profile people for this kind of of, of personality characteristic, what their baseline kind of, 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 of risk-taking profile would be. What do you do to assess what kind of character you've got? Um, for pilots, we, uh, it's all based 50% character, and then obviously we need um, people with suitable experience, so lots of hours on faster aeroplanes. Yeah. But the character element is, is really important. And so what are you looking for? Um, Stable, predictable, uh, trustworthy—all those, all those good words. Uh, as Alex said, it's people who they'll be doing stuff over there, and you know what they're going to do. Yeah. If uh, the weather suddenly deteriorates, you know what they're going to do. Um, so it's having a team of people like that around you. Uh, so, uh, and we're lucky because we can pick those, pluck those from all the characters around the air force. So no mavericks in the oh. in the red arrow. No. That was very definite. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just had a, a question for Alex, because that, that notion of a gradual build-up of stress, um, you often think about sports decision-making as being internal to the game. I'm in a situation, what do I do there? But actually, often it's not about the game, it's about the tournament. And do you see that, that people's uh, ability to respond in a game changes over the course of, of a tournament? I think... Um, what I was going to discuss about uh, decision making and lead leaders uh, earlier was, you know, a lot of it's made out as one person is the leader and, you know, everything goes through them and it's all on their shoulders. And I think in team sports, the more successful sides I've been part of have always had uh, one guy is the head, but everyone feeds into him. He's, he's never on his own. He's always had people with him. Um, and I think, you know, when you get to teams, perhaps when there's not those leaders and and there's people who are on their own agenda, that's when it comes out. You get mavericks, you get people who try and solve problems on their own, you get people who go into their shells. And what you need to have is everyone just going in that same direction. You know, you might be behind in a game by you know, a few points and people start panicking and you know, or thinking they have to solve problems. And actually it's about everyone just coming in, speaking to each other and saying, let's go back to the process. You know, we know what we need to do. We've been through it all week in, in the game plan or whatever it is, and we go in that same direction because otherwise you invariably find, um, as I said, you, you get lost and the, the game gets further away from you. And, um, I think that can be amplified in, in bigger tournaments and the, the bigger the pressure, the more people 
um, you know, the different personalities want to be either the star or they want to, you know, just be safe. And I think actually if you get everyone in that same uh, mindset of, you know, we've had a few negatives here, we've knocked the ball on, we've, we've made some mistakes, okay, what's going to get us back on track here? We need to get a result from this next play, whether it be doing something very simple or just saying that we're going to get a positive result to readdress the momentum because at every stage things go away from you, but it's how you address that. And I think if you've got individual personalities who go on their own agenda, then unfortunately it's going to be very difficult and you need everyone going in that same direction. But, but don't we need to leave a space as well for that, let's not call it a maverick because it sounds like a derogatory term, should we not be in a team context, team decision making context, should we not be leaving space for that individual to act on a, on a moment of insight as well? There's got to be a, a sweet spot there between everybody following the same the same course and somebody noticing. I mean, you don't want people making decisions for themselves when there's another aircraft wing six feet away. That seems like a bad idea. So I understand what uh, no mavericks in, in your setup, but it seems like in, in, in a, any team sport, in fact, there are some people who perhaps we don't get the best out of if we don't leave that space for them to operate with that creativity. I'm, I'm certainly not saying you start for the creativity. Yeah. It's just sometimes when um, things have gone wrong for a few few minutes or 10 minutes and the game is going away it's about just getting everyone on page yeah. you still want your creative players to create and, and show some magic or, or do something brilliant but within the, the the structure not you know you know structured that is you can't do anything but to an element of structure that people are, are with them so they're not on their own completely you know they might do something brilliant but it's within the structure of the team that they know what's going on and that it, they're allowed to do yeah. that and i think it's about going to your best players and getting the best out of them, and you don't want them to go quiet, but it's about facilitating that so they give them more space or give them the opportunity to do that, as opposed to, you know, let's just go quiet, nothing's happening, let's just hope that he does something good, and if he doesn't, then we'll, we'll say he's a maverick and he wins some, he loses some, and, and that's, not the, that's not the case. You yeah. need everyone to get on page and, and give them the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Um, before we move on to a, 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 another section, has, has anybody got any uh, anything that they want to add or, or query these guys on now? There'll be chance at the end as well, but you're welcome now if it's if it's on your mind. Super. So, um, one of the other things I, I wanted to move on to was how we learn from bad decision making. So, um, I I remember working with one athlete. We were looking at something that she did, and and um, I said, "What what happened there?" She said, "I made the wrong decision." I said, "So." what can we do differently next time? And she said, well, I'll try and make the right decision, um, <laughs> which isn't very forensic, really. You know, it doesn't give us a great space to work in. So um, how do we learn from, from mistakes in, uh, in, in, in a decision-making under pressure context? Well, I mean, in the short term on the pitch, it's about, as I said a minute ago, just readdressing what goes wrong and, and getting everyone on page so that you can get a, a positive impact and, and get the momentum back. I think slightly longer term in the sort of debrief, rev review, whatever you, you want to call it. Um, I think it's about, again, I go back to relationships. I think it's about being comfortable in the group, um, that you, you know each other well enough or you have the confidence to be able to say to each other that you made that mistake, you know, you should have done this or you know, perhaps we should have done it that way. Because if, you, if you're in an environment where, you know, people are whispering in corridors or qu quietly behind backs, and nothing ever gets done. It's never positive. And you have to have that... Uh, ability that the youngest guy on the team can say to the oldest guy, and, and the Red Arrows have this perfectly, as I'm sure Martin will say in a minute, but it's about the youngest guy talking to the oldest guy and say, actually, I need you to do this, or you, know, you should have made that tackle. Yeah. Um, 
and, and go with that so there's confidence in the group and you have to have relationships for that and it's the and older guys knowing the young guys. How well. forensic can it get? So there, there are lots of, we haven't talked about different kinds of pressure yet, so one kind of pressure we've not spoken about is physical pressure. Your brain operates differently when you're at your, your physical limit and people often make mistakes in the last five or ten minutes of a, uh, a, 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 of a match. There's mental pressure which might be the, the stress of the occasion, it might be the stress, long-term stress of the tournament and there's time pressure when things are just moving very, very quickly. You've been making one set of, let's say, defensive decisions very well, and then you've got to change tact and you've got to switch into a different decision-making mode. How, how forensic are we about thinking about what kind of pressure was it that led to that mistake? Because I still feel like we're talking about pressure as an undifferentiated... Um, I think you look at it as um, not just what went wrong, but why did it go wrong? And it's about... You know, the best coaches I've come across is, is making it realistic and relating it to the players as what happened. Because, you know, it might be that, you know, we knocked a ball on and someone goes, it's his fault he knocked on. But why was he in that position? Why was he given that pass? Why was there pressure coming on? And it's breaking it down to why have we got ourselves in this position and how we can be better at delivering that. And um, certainly at Saracens, we're very lucky. We, you know, we have lots of stats and, you know, video analysis and all that. It's kept away from the players to a, a large extent. But the small data we are given, there's a reason for why we're showing it yeah. and why we need to improve. And I think if you do that, then you've always can get a, a buy-in from the players. You know, we don't want to see loads of graphs and you know loads of analysis like that because you can get lost on on players. But if you just break it down as to this is why this has happened and this is how we need to go on the training field and improve. I think you've always got a much better chance of getting a result yeah. next time and learning from those mistakes. You need a great deal of emotional maturity to, to sit in one of those sessions and to, to take that kind of criticism. So how do we, how do we build that and what, what do you do? It's um, very similar to, as Alex describes it, um, slightly differently. We, uh, we don't use names in the, in the debrief, so you are a number uh, for your formation position. Do you do that? Is it um, names or numbers? No, we go with names. Right. We, we're not clever enough to remember numbers, so uh, <laughs> we have to go with, with names. <laughs> we very unoriginal nicknames. That Everybody well. believes that. Yeah. <laughs> it's sad, but we sit in order, so it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the other one is we encourage all of the criticism should come from yourself. So it's self-criticism. And if you are quiet, we'll stop the tape, and someone more senior or in another position will say, please review that, what do you think? Yeah. Um, and it, then it's just what, why, how. Yeah. So what happened, why, how are we going to fix it? And we demand of people with psychological skills, we kind of demand them to be ready-made in a way that we don't with physical skills. So, you know, you don't, at Saracens, you don't demand that people arrive with so much muscle or so much skill, you're willing to develop it. Uh, but we somehow do expect people to be able to step into these positions. How long does it take a red arrow who you know has gone through a very high selection process. How long does it take them to really be able to buy into that that, that process of criticism properly? They can't be ready-made when they come in from day one, or are they? The uh, I think uh, all of the, the the way we debrief or after-action reviews happens throughout the service. So there's a there's people are used to that uh, environment, but we just take it up a notch because yeah. we have to because the margins aren't. Are too small, so okay. with six feet in between airplanes, so you, we we cannot, as you say, have corridor conversations about. Oh, I'm a bit worried about that. It all has to happen in that room. Yeah. Um, so there's not much time for. Oh, well done. There's, yeah. It's all about how do we make stuff better. Uh, and, and what do you do, Greg? Do you just say, "Well, you told me to sell your children. I just did what you told me." 
I, I'll be honest, I, I think this is the area where the corporate world and the financial world are worst compared to the others. So you guys talk about systematic debriefs, about the use of after action reviews. Very seldom do I see that happening in an effective way in an investing context. And, and some of that is because if it's a non-professional if it's, if it's non investor and something happens that you've lost money on, you get out the other end, the first thing you want to do is just get as far away from that as possible. Yeah. So you don't want to sit there and, and pick over it. Um, the other problem, though, is unlike with you, gents, you know, it's, it'll happen. You'll make the mistake, and you'll know immediately that there's a mistake, and I could have done something different. In investing, often you don't know until six, nine, 12 months later whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. And we overwrite our own memories. So you make a decision, wait nine months, it turns out well, and our natural inclination is to go, yeah, you know what, I knew that all along. Wow, I'm smart, I'm such a brilliant investor. If you make a decision and nine months later it turns out badly, we all have a tendency to go, you know, I always had a nagging doubt about that one. And we don't learn yeah, yeah, because yeah. It's, it's impossible to be honest with ourselves over long periods of time and without using the sort of processes that you guys use. So, which relates to Richard Hitner's talk, I, I hope lots of you heard it this morning, on the importance of a conciliary, someone who can say the, the unthinkable to you, someone who can tell you that, that you've got a plank in your eye and, and, and that you're not, you're not, not, not seeing things as you, uh, yeah, uh, as, as you should do. You need to phone it, a friend more. Yeah. It also reminds me of uh, there's a, a, a book published by Matthew Syed just last month called Black Box Thinking. It reminds me of the difference between, um, uh, between the aviation industry and the health industry. The aviation industry does what you do. What how, why, what do we do to make it better? Because the medical industry has a way of, of, of passing the book around and never actually getting to, to, what's, uh, to, to what's caused the, the, the initial error. And in your dispassionate approach with numbers, um, it's about using that process and being very, very careful for it not to become a process of attributing blame, mm. but rather actually finding out root cause so you can fix it. Mm. And you, I also, you, know, you see that a lot in the corporate world as well. When you do do some sort of after-action review, it's, it's often more about people trying to allocate blame somewhere away from where they are. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're all very lucky in that you, you work with elites and you work with, with motivated people. Uh, but even, even at the elite level in, in sport, the, you know, we're talking sometimes about 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old adolescents, really. You know, they're not people yet. And... Um, and their decision-making capacities might go a bit, bit wobbly uh, for, for a few years. Um, we're not always sure what's going to appear as a person at the other end of that. Um, so we're tasked sometimes with developing decision-makers from some very rough material. And even then, when they, they have passed through adolescence, we can end up with some people who are, um, who've not got the raw material to be natural decision-makers. So it's kind of if I might say so, easy in a way to deal with the brilliant guys you have to deal with. Um, what, what would you suggest that we do with some of the guys who are a little bit trigger happy, um, who are uh, very poor at, at, at taking on uh, the meaning of consequences, but we still have to keep them in the program because they are brilliant athletes and they've got a great skill base and we believe that there's something in there that we... Um, so Producing, producing from the, 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 those who have already got that great raw material is kind of easy. What do we do 
with the people who haven't self-evidently got it. Because, you know, we're, we're in the business of changing people as, as, as coaches and mentors and, and, and performance directors. Yeah, I was looking at you, because I think your life's pretty easy with all these great guys coming in. What would you do with someone like me in your squadron? The, I won't answer that. Um, you knocked it on the head. It's uh, uh, mentoring. Uh, is, uh, and I, we use that for the engineers. So we have brilliant talent. We have 18-year-olds who have just come out of training who arrive on the squadron, and suddenly we say, right, you're jumping in the back of that aeroplane. You're going to be... Um, uh, when it lands, you'll then service the aeroplane and all those things. Massive responsibility for an 18-year-old. But I'm going to have an older, ma older person next to him and coach him and yeah. mentor him um, yeah. because uh, half the, they don't do the wrong thing on purpose. Yeah. And if they make bad decisions, it's because they just haven't been trained or seen enough yet. And do you think that system has turned people around? You, you do. So you've, yes. you've seen people who you could have discarded, so they haven't got what it takes to be that kind of decision maker under, under stress, mm. but you've put them through a, a, a programme. Yeah. How long is that programme? Um, I mean, it starts from when they uh, get their uniform uh, at the beginning of training. Yeah. I, th I think the service are um, pretty good at turning up the heat gradually, because what we don't want to do is just scare people yeah. by giving them undue pressure when they're 17. Yeah. But, but we just keep turning the notch. And what's the average age of your, your pilots? Uh, discounting me, uh, 32. Right. 32, 32. And including you? Uh, yeah. Let's not do the maths. Yeah. You guys I was, was, was going to say, I think, I think with that as well, and, and we spoke beforehand, um, you know, you, you can get different, different young kids and different types of athletes when you're younger, and really what you're looking for, I think, in, for someone who, who's done a little bit of mentoring on not that old, I guess, in comparison. Um, but you know, it's about looking at what their character is, what their you know, what their ticker, heart, whatever you want to call it. Now, are they someone who's going to work hard and, and grind it out and try and try their best to achieve something, you know, no matter what, or are they just unbelievably talented and you know, everything's come a bit easier? And, and I think you know, you, you might stick them in a plane and, and find out what they're like under pressure. You know, it's about put them in a, in a big group of uh, or a team or a group of guys and. And not just seeing how they, they go, you're obviously with them the whole way, but are they there to stick it out and work hard and, and, and get the best out of themselves, or are they there just to, oh, it's getting a bit tough and yeah. maybe we, we fall down? Yeah. And I think in this day and age, we've got so much, so much ability to get stats and analysis and look at every physical attribute of every player and you know, how, much he can, how quick he can run, how big he is, how strong he is. And actually, sometimes you have to go back to what is their character, what are they about, and... You know, the best sportsmen in history have always had unbelievable character and sometimes been you know, last on the draft or you know, not picked up early. And I think that's, when you come back to it, that's the key point for me. Yeah. I'd like to uh, just finish off on, on, on one point um, and, and, and take your opinion on, on this, Greg, which is the role of emotion in, in decision-making. So I was telling you earlier about a trader I'm, I'm, I'm working with who's going to make his decisions and hand the trading over to other people so that his emotions don't get, get caught up in the, the longer term, term process. But how do, you, how do you deal with it and give people an impression of how emotional it gets when you're dealing with several million pounds at a, at a time? <laughs> well, I, I'm emotional just saying that. It, <laughs> in a sense, I don't think it's any different from, from these environments. Um, when, you're, when you know the stakes are high, the, the pressure builds 
and, um, and emotion invariably finds its way in. The, the key is, how do I try to drive a wedge between the emotional response that I have that is bred of training and familiarity with the environment, and I know what I'm doing because I've been doing this for 10 years, and the emotional aspects of gut feel that creep in that are more about fear and more about um, me wanting to seek comfort. And what's particularly interesting, where there have been studies of this in traders, is people who are good at managing their emotions do so very consciously. So if you look at the young traders, typically they go, I'm not emotional. I leave my emotions at the door. I'm, you know, I just, emotion's not part of training. And it's rubbish. They're very emotional when you actually look at what's <laughs> happening. If you look at older traders who've been in the industry a while, they broadly break down into two groups. The slightly less successful ones acknowledge the role of emotions, but that's about it f as far as it goes. The really successful ones almost treat their emotional self as like a member of staff. I am able to observe my emotional state, and I know that there are times when I need to pep it up, and there are times when I need to calm it down. And so that notion of mindfulness, of being able to actually consciously consider, am I being too, too emotional or not emotional enough, that's what really seems to be able to provide the regulation that means I know I'm going to have an emotional response to this, but how do I make sure that I keep the good bits of that emotional response because I'm responding to this uncertain environment and get rid of the bad bits? And it requires a great deal of self-awareness. And that takes years and years to train, and I think the question is can we shortcut it? And the sort of processes that you have where we've got these simple rules, you know, avoid the ground, these are ways of trying to build shortcuts for that self-awareness mm -hmm. that we don't have to spend 20 years getting it wrong before we can get it right. Yeah. Um, just before we wrap up, uh, uh, any comments or questions for these, these guys? We'll be around uh, later on to, to chat. There's a question over here if you've got a microphone. Yeah. Um, I, I find it interesting. Uh, I work with professional tennis players and very seldom when they first go on a center court against a big player, do they not perform? In other words, the pressure is so intense for them to actually perform and not make a fool of themselves that they usually play fine. If they get into a position to win, they invariably lose first time because then it hits them that, oh my God, I could do something special here, and the pressure gets them there and they don't win. But in, in, in hearing what you're saying, you know, with, with the red arrows, it's almost like a life and death if somebody makes a, a, a really bad mistake. So people don't. And I just wondered what your view would be is that sometimes maybe in sport, uh, there's not enough pressure. So that, uh, you know, the consequences are not so great that, you know, somebody you know could die and and therefore the, the 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 disciplines and everything like that can slip because the the consequences aren't so great and you know I've just noticed it with young players when they practice with a top player they're so focused and if they brought that focus to their practice every day they'd be even better or a lot better so just wondered what your view is that sometimes there's not enough pressure I was going to say, Alex, there's not enough pressure on you. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I mean, it's a good point, to be fair. I think um, a lot of people, especially when they first start out, they, 
they see that heightened pressure or you know they're training with the the, be the best and they, they've got to perform um, I guess my answer would be is that the top top players are the ones who are at that level every single every single session and the ones that always come through are the ones who whether it be a Tuesday night and it's wet and cold in the middle of nowhere when no one's watching they still deliver and they still prepare and they still go about their business in the ultimately the most professional way um, I guess to answer, I, I, I couldn't tell you why, why that is, but I think it's that character I spoke about before, in a way, in that some people, every time they're out there on the field, they want to get better, they want to improve, they want to get something from it, and they come with an intensity which others can't live with. And, you know, it might be, in some eyes, too intense and, and too full on, but it's ultimately what makes them the best players and the best people. And so they can deliver, whether it be in front of 100,000 or you know, one man and a dog, they're always there, they're, their mindset is always switched on to that. And I think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not the best to tell you how to train that, but it's certainly what sets out the best from everyone else. It's, um, just to go back to, uh, it's not only the uh, life-death thing for, for, the, for the Reds, it's also um, reputational, it's the brand, and getting every single 121 people to believe in the brand, so whether it's the Red Rose on the on your chest it's it's believing that teamwork everyone you know that is the aim we need to pr preserve the brand um, and it's a fear of failure I suppose that's that's the one so isn't, I isn't, there, isn't there an important distinction here because um, what you're doing is you're pushing it to the limit but not beyond the limit right and the, and the big distinction here is when in competitive sport you're playing against someone mm. in your case the ground will kill you, but it's not actively trying to do so. I'm really glad about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we have to stop there, I'm afraid. Uh, we're, we're out of time. Um, Martin, thank you very much. Carry on keeping six feet away from, from, from each other. Alex, six feet away from the nearest All Black when you have the ball. <laughs> Greg, six feet away from other people's children. Okay, that would be the, the real key. Could we <laughs> thank the three speakers, please?